Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Randall Carlisle. My guest is Mindy Vincent. Thank you for coming, Mindy. <laughs> Thanks for uh, having me. She's the exactly. Did you read the cue card right there? Thanks <laughs> yeah. for having me. She's the executive director of the Utah Harm Reduction Coalition. And I'm going to start out by saying this could be one of the most controversial podcasts you will watch. Uh, because Mindy, as sweet and innocent as she looks, is a very controversial figure because she's a strong proponent of harm reduction. And we're going to consider two words today. We had Mindy on a couple of years ago on a podcast, and she shocked me with <laughs> what she said. We're going to think of these two words, recovering or recovered, okay? And before we talk about those two words, just give us like a real brief summary of your past, of your past. Uh, you, you know, the addiction, all that yeah. kind of stuff. So I'm a person who has recovered from a substance use disorder. Uh, what that means is I have not chaotically used substances or identified as being addicted since April 22nd of 2007, which means I have over 16 years. Right. And, and back my then, drug of choice. And back then you were addicted to what? Meth. I am a retired meth user. And I was addicted to meth for 17 years. I became an addict when I was 12, 13 years old. I used till I was 30. Um, when I went into treatment at the Haven and drug court, I'm also a graduate of the House of Hope. I don't know why Odyssey never got the chance to have me, but I'm glad they didn't. <laughs> Back in my day, Odyssey was a much longer program yeah. than it is now. Two, two years, minimum. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, and I was as chaotic and harmful as a user as anybody else I know. In fact, my drug addict friends used to say things to me like, you know, Mindy, we're concerned about your drug use. And I was like, <laughs> get out of here. And uh, arrests? I mean, did yeah, you I'm a. Uh, I, well, now I have a full pardon from the state of Utah, but I was a multiply convicted felon, which meant I didn't qualify for expungement, which is why I had to get a pardon. I'm a federal felon, too. I'm in the middle of a lawsuit against the United States of America right now over my rights. Rights of what? My gun rights, um, because that was the easiest thing to sue them for. Like, one, I mean, I do want my gun rights back, but for me, it's about so much more than gun rights. It's about the fact that on the federal level, people don't have a pathway to redemption the way you do in the state of Utah. So you can apply for a presidential pardon, but you know, I'm not a rapper. <laughs> I don't know Kim Kardashian, so I don't think I'll get one. Um, but there should be a pathway for people to have expungement. I shouldn't have to even disclose that I'm a felon anymore. I paid my debt to society the day I was off paper and I still have tons of rights inhibited for me today, including my gun rights, including some of my travel rights. I can't go into Canada you know, if I had to disclose on a housing application or job application that I'm a felon, I wouldn't even get an opportunity. Canada and won't let you in? They will not. You cannot forever? get into Canada if you have even had a DUI. You have to apply for deemed rehabilitation. So, and I'm willing to do that um, if that's what I need to do. But ultimately, I just believe that people at some point should be able to leave their past behind them. And in fact, Utah, because I was suing the state of Utah as well, but Utah this year passed a law uh, saying that after seven years, nonviolent felons can have their firearm rights back. And so then, then they asked me to drop my lawsuit against him, which I did. 
So back in the day, you were a hardcore drug addict. Yes. Okay. And, and did that include booze? Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because like when I was an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's really easy to identify, to look at any of your substitutes and be like, oh yeah, it was so chaotic. But today I look at it so differently because like, even though I did drink, I didn't drink, alcohol was never my drug of choice. Okay. Right. But I have drank to blackout and drank too much many times, just like every person I think who's ever drank alcohol. You know, it's a very easy thing to step over the line with. Right. But when I look back on it now, I know that one, nobody ever talked to me about safe consumption. So I didn't even know what safe alcohol consumption even looked like, first of all. Second of all, like that's what 15 and 16 year olds tend to do when you're a a young, you know, kind of a wild kid, right? Like, of course you're going to drink till you're puking. Like that's not abnormal behavior for young drinkers who don't have education. (laughs) Okay. And the reason I'm asking this is because I'm a, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Okay. And I still say that. And I've been sober for over 11 years now. Okay. Uh, but I'm still afraid, uh, to take a drink because I really believe if I have one or two, I'll have 20. Yeah. Okay. Were you an alcoholic? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so the reason I'm bringing up, and I say this is controversial because, uh, when when we were interviewing you a couple of years ago, you used the word recovered as opposed to recovering. And, and can you explain the difference? Because I look at it that I can't consume alcohol. Yeah. Okay. But uh, and, and therefore I'll be an alcoholic for life. And if I drank, if I had a drink, I probably would have too many. I don't know because I haven't, I'm not yeah. willing to take that chance. And when you said recovered, it, it, I, I perked up yeah. because if you, if you remember in the big book, everybody who claims to be an alcoholic, uh, always dreams of being a normal drinker. Yeah. Okay. So a great obsession. Yes. Yep. So you said recovered and, and you referred to the fact that, that, one of the reasons you were so heavily into drugs had to do with emotional trauma. Yes. Okay. And that you've cleared that emotional trauma. Therefore you're recovered. Okay. Explain all that. One piece of it. So there's four pieces to that. So I truly do believe people recover from addiction and science supports that too. That's just not the science that we share very often because we're, and this is going to piss some people off. We're protecting a multi- million dollar treatment industry that makes its living off of the disease concept and saying that people will never recover and that people will always relapse. So first of all, from an Alcoholics Anonymous perspective, the big book uses the term recovered and to say that we are anything less would be to deny the power of God. And it uses that term over and over again. And it uses it for in the first time when it's talking about we are men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And at the time that they wrote the big book, these people all had two years or less of sobriety. So they considered two years or less, actually more like 18 months, to be a substantial amount of sobriety time. And they also considered them to be recovered. But they also considered, uh, what was his story about looking out the window and thinking, uh, praying to a higher power, and all of a sudden somebody relieved him of his desire to drink. Bill? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So... Well, what that, well, I don't know that that part is necessarily what recovered him. You know, I, that's his moment of clarity. Right. Okay. Where then so, he started doing the work, right? 
Um, so go ahead. Bill I, W. wasn't even abstinent his whole sobriety no, career. He, he was a user of psychedelics and believed that that's how people would reach their spiritual awakening. Right. The steps didn't give it to him. So I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead with your four points. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> That's He's right. like, I don't want to take you off on a tangent, Mindy. Randall has talked to me before, so he knows. Yeah. Like, I will just go off. And we you, don't want that. You could that. make this go for an hour, that but it's easily. only a half hour. So Well, we better okay. get to yes, it then. Okay. No. So the four components I believe that it takes for people to recover entirely from substance use is to learn new coping skills. First and foremost, because substance use is our number one coping skill. Like even in the bid sure. book, it says it's not about the drugs and alcohol. It's those are a symptom of the problem, right? So if you treated the underlying problem, why wouldn't the symptoms go away? Right? I mean, it just makes sense. It's how it works in all other things. So uh, learning new coping skills so that substance use doesn't have to be the one healing the traumas of the past, uh, gaining protective factors like you know, a community and housing, jobs, meaning, purpose, recovery, sure. right? Like, uh, and then decreasing risk factors, you know, which are things like homelessness, being disconnected, like not having purpose, you know? So when people have a life worth living, why would you want to escape it, right? And when you're not being fueled by trauma responses and reactions to past traumas that you haven't worked on and you don't have other skills, you know, then of course you're going to abuse drugs and alcohol. So you, I mean, if that's your coping skill, right? People abuse lots and lots of things right? in the same yeah. way that people abuse sure. drugs and alcohol. Sure. And we don't tell people you can never eat sugar again, you right. know, because remember that all those years you were a binge eater, so now you can't eat anymore. <laughs> like that would, you know, and I'm not advocating at all for people to use substances, right? Like when I got here, when I got to recovery. I mean, I was beaten. I was willing to do whatever it took, you know, and I would have happily spent the rest of my life in 12 step programs. I love 12 steps to this day. The big book is the book that still guides my life. Like those steps are a part of who I am. And I think that everyone in the world would benefit from working the steps of alcoholics. Well, well, I, I, I agree. Yeah, I, lo yeah. I love it. You know, yeah. so I, it was never that I wanted to drink or, or use. It was that I didn't have to anymore. And it, at one, at some point it became more painful to stay in a box that I didn't fit in anymore than the fear of stepping outside of it. Cause I had the same fear you have, like, you know, cause you hear when you're in recovery, well, do you want to go back to where you came from? That's yeah. your disease doing pushups in the back of your mind. And it's like, of course I don't. I was shooting meth in my neck with toilet water, you know? Um, but I knew that that wasn't my truth anymore, you know? And I, I had, and I had to take a chance and see, and it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't because I wanted to drink or anything. It was just that that's not what I had to not do anymore. So you overcame the traumas that you were numbing yourself for. Yeah. How'd you do that? EMDR has been the biggest helper. And in fact, I'm still working on that, you know, because I have complex trauma. I lived a really traumatic life for a really long time. What were your traumas? Uh, I was physically abused as a kid when I was on my seventh birthday. My mom abandoned me. I didn't hear from her again for two years. When she did call, when she did show up after two years, she only wanted to talk to my sister, not to me. And mm. like, I didn't think anything of that. But then just recently I was reprocessing that memory in EMDR. And man, that's like one of my deepest, most painful memories is that my mom didn't choose me. You know, not that I wanted her to choose me over my sister, but just that I was always just less important. You know, and so like some of those and then, of course, the physical abuse. And then when I was a teenager, I was in the system. I, my dad surrendered me to the state. I was in and out of foster homes and um, 
you know, in host homes and group homes. And my brother, when I didn't do what they wanted me to do, they started taking my brother and putting him places and we'd break out of these places and do mm. whatever it took to be together. And, you know, and then when my son was born, you know, like uh, when he was 20 months old, my parents took him from me because I still struggled with addiction and I'm all about protecting kids, but I'm not all about separating kids from their parents. And unless you absolutely have to. And I think that rarely is that the case, you know, and when my parents took my son, man, that just, I don't, I'm surprised I even lived through that. That's why I hate tough love so much because, uh, if I had known something different or better to do to cope, I would have done it. Like when people said to me, well, if you just loved your son enough, you'd quit. And it's <laughs> like, you don't understand. I, he's the only thing I've ever loved. And now that I don't have him, I have nothing to live for. And I have no idea how to manage that kind of pain. And I have no skills to get myself out of it. And I didn't have DCFS involvement either. So I was really just like lost, had no idea what to do. Sure. And we have to believe that people are doing the best they can, you know, with what they have. Relapse occurs when the situation a person is in calls for more than the skills they have to handle it. So you have all the skills you need to handle it now, right? I feel like I, feel like I do. I mean, I wouldn't say that... You know, I, I'm never overwhelmed by a situation, but especially like, you know, I mean, I've lost my sister in sobriety. I have, go I've gone through a divorce. I have built companies, almost lost one, you know, and over all those things, drinking and using drugs was never feels like the answer for me today. Right. Like when i this is one of the ways that I know that it's so different is when I'm under distress, especially really painful, big stuff. The last thing I want to do is be anything but sober. Because you want to have a clear head and be yeah, able to deal with it. Yeah, my mind best sure, in sure. pure sobriety, sure. you know. So now, okay, I, I know you you occasionally have, you're a social drinker now, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and I'm a medical and, cannabis patient. Really? Yes. And and neither of those things scare you that they'll, they'll send you back to meth. No. In fact, like... When we're talking about medical cannabis, especially, it just makes me laugh because I've never like in hardcore drug users, you hardly even find people who smoke weed when you're like, hey, you want to smoke a bowl? People are like, what are you, 15? You know, like hardcore meth users are not smoking a whole lot of weed. Um, but also, <laughs> I don't know anybody who smoked a joint is like, you know what I'm going to do next? Crack hits. Like, it's just yeah. it's just not where it goes. Like we've the science has disproven the gateway theory forever. And if anything was ever a gateway drug, I would say it would be more alcohol because alcohol inhibits you. And then you're more likely, I think, to like to make a bad else. decision. Yeah. Right. And especially for people who were stimulant users, uh, when you're too drunk, we all know what makes that better. You know, a line of cocaine or some meth. Sure. Right. And so I think that it puts people at higher risk for relapse that way. But that's one of the big things that I hope comes out of the things that I've done and the work that I've done and the rebel recovery group that I started and all that is that the reality is, is most people return to normalcy at some point. That is the truth. And most people that you and I know in recovery have social drinks. And it took a long time for all of those people to be able to come out of the closet about it. And most of those people didn't have anybody to even talk about or navigate it with. Like me, when I went returned to normalcy, I didn't have anybody I could talk to about that because everybody I knew was in AA-based recovery. Sure. And so in that moment, I not only lost all my sober support, but I didn't have anybody who would give me real information or feedback about these choices I was making and me navigating my relationship with substances. 
So I want to have a safe place where people can come to me and say, you know what? I think I might drink again after treatment. And it's like, okay, well, what's that going to okay, look Mindy, like? I think I might drink again after treatment. What yeah. does that look like for me? Yeah. What, well, I'm asking you what that would look like for I, you because see, I, I don't can't know tell you what your experiences I'm, are, I'm, but I'm what scared, have they been in I'm the past? I'm scared to do it. Then I would say maybe that's not a good idea for you. And I would also ask you, like, what is your motivation for wanting to have a drink? Uh, it, it, it's relaxing in a social setting. Uh, I'm more, uh, I guess I'm more forward with people and, and speak up more. I'm sort of quiet. I'm not a loud, a loud person. Uh, and, and, and it does change me somewhat. I'm more forward in terms of asking a girl to go out on a date because yeah. it gives me liquid courage. Right. Okay. So those would be the reasons, I guess. Yeah. So then I'd also ask you two other things. Like one, are you able to obtain those things in another way that might be healthier? And two, what has been your past experience with drinking and why would your drinking intake be different this time? And also, if you decided to have a drink, what would that look like? What would be the safeguards that you would put in place to ensure that four drinks doesn't lead to five? You know what I mean? Because especially if you're going to, and also I always tell people who their drug of choice was alcohol. I'm like, mm, that, you know, you might not ever be able to drink again, you yeah. know? And I mean, and you have to really ask yourself, why would you want to, you know, cause I would never want to use meth again. And, and I don't, I didn't destroy my life with alcohol, but if I destroy it, but I destroyed my whole life with meth. Right. So it's like, no, I'm done with that entirely. There's nothing about that that is helpful for me. And even to this day, like even though I socially drink, the negative impacts of alcohol on my body, on my mind, on my emotions, it causes me to get anxiety. Even like one drink, like when the drink wears off, my GABA receptors are going crazy and I have anxiety, which I'm not a person that experiences anxiety. So it the reward in that moment has to be that payoff has to be more than what I'm going to experience later for it. And that all those kind of things are awarenesses I never even had before. My right. body couldn't detect right. anything. I was just like, whatever, ah, I'll yeah. put it in me, you know? Yeah. And I have that awareness too, which is why I don't drink, Yeah, you know? So, and, and, and I know that, that uneasy feeling after you've been drinking is, yeah. is horrible. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I don't like that. So I have to, yeah, you know, okay. ask myself like, oh, is that. Is that something I want to do? Is this event or whatever worth having a couple of drinks right. for? You know, because I, I'm then not going to lie. Then why do you have a couple of drinks? Well, because I do enjoy having some drinks sometimes, you know, and like having those drinks in that moment has to be worth more than the anxiety I'm going to feel later right. or like, you know, it makes my body like my muscles aren't as strong. I'm a triathlete and I train every day. And um, if I've had any alcohol, I can feel the difference in my body. And I don't like that. But also when I'm in Vegas, I love to wake up and go down and have a coffee, a mimosa, a bottle of water and start playing Keno. Like, I love it. You know, it's so, one of, that's one of my happiest places is Harris and Marsha, 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 Marsha. <laughs> that's my cocktail waitress do you, do down there. And you win money when you gamble. I do win. Right? I, I do win a lot. I mean, I lose too, but there's, you know, because there's a reason why I get comped everything down there. <laughs> okay. Recovered. Am I a recovered alcoholic or recovering alcoholic? I guess it would depend on what you identify as. I mean, the big book says that you're recovered when you're relieved from a seemingly hopeless 
state of mind and body, which I, which I would say you yeah. have been for a long time, sure. right? Yeah. Um, today, I consider myself like the first time I said that, it's like psh, I've been recovered from in that way for, you know, since I was like 18 right. months sober, right? Right. But today, I'm recovered because being an addict is a part of who I used to be. It's not a part of who I am today. You okay. know, like I do not go seeking things that are bad for me. I don't abuse, I try not to abuse anything in my life, including like, Food, shopping, you know, like I try to gambling. Very, yeah, gambling. <laughs> I try very mindfully yeah. since I got off meth. My gambling is very much under control, but like, um, I try to balance. You know, I I de use DBT skills in my own life all the time, so I really try to balance like different coping mechanisms that I use to bring emotional regulation and joy and things like that to build joy in my life, so that I don't ever have to like milk one for all it's worth. You know what I mean? I have a multitude of coping skills that I can all just use sure, pieces from. Sure. I don't need to get loaded, you know, and, and plus the things I do in my life, my life is so full of purpose and love and joy. And I pinch myself every day that I get to live the life that is mine, you I, know, and I, why, I why would I want to be outside of that? I, I really love your character. Thank uh, you. Yes. Uh, and, and, and what people may or may not realize is that Mindy's been a, 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 a rebel, a, a big time rebel. And yes, <laughs> and, 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 you know, with the idea of syringe exchange, harm reduction, maybe we only have like four minutes left. So just, dun, just dun, dun. talk about, talk about harm reduction and how it's working now and how you really started the concept. Yeah. Well, brought, carried it from all the brilliant minds that did it before me to here. Um, but, you know, harm reduction is truly meeting people where they're at. I'll be presenting on it and its ethics at fall conference. And I can't wait because I can't wait to show the research that demonstrates that the biggest barrier to implementing harm reduction based interventions is providers, <laughs> providers in and of themselves, their own beliefs about recovery and what worked for them. It, they ignore science in order to perpetuate their own beliefs and it's killing people. It doesn't make any sense why in substance use treatment, it's the only treatment that I know that requires the outcome before the work's been done to get there. And then we tell people that unless it looks just like this, it's not enough and we're not going to help them. And that's stupid. That's literally outright stupid. And to me, it's unethical. So, so harm reduction is really about meeting people where they're at, helping them find recovery, meaning that any place that is better than the one that they were in, any positive change is celebrated in harm reduction, right? So, um, but like, as far as how we treat people, it's literally no different. It's just that we'll engage people no matter where they're at. What about the argument that, uh, okay, if I give you more needles, you're going to, I'm encouraging your, your IV drug use. Yeah. So that is, hilarious. I mean, I get where people come up with that concept, but it's been so long disproven by science over and over and over again. So I would really encourage people to, you know, read the science, read the research and believe it, whether, you know, that's the funny thing about science. It's true, whether you believe it or not, you know, so. <laughs> well, not really in this put, day and age. <laughs> I know, right. Know. But people need to put their own biases aside to really look at the research and the data and see what really does work for people. Um, yeah, I forgot the rest of that question. Well, it's just the say. whole concept of harm reduction. And, and you and I were chatting briefly before we started recording this about 
safe injection sites. Yeah. Now explain that. Oh, enabling people. Yeah. Because yeah. the truth is, is so first of all, we already have safe consumption sites for alcohol. They're called bars. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. people yeah. drink in bars all the time. And in fact, it's illegal to be drinking out in public, right? right? right. But yet people are forced to use drugs out in public where they have a way higher risk of getting diseases and dirtiness in their syringes and all sorts of other things. Right. And that has a whole bunch of costs associated with it. But the reality is, is that whether or not I can get a syringe never had any bearing on whether or not I used. Have you ever met a heroin addict that says, well, can't get a rig, so I guess I just won't use today. Right. With heroin in their pocket, get out of here. Yeah. And if I came to you. Let me use your you, needle or your needle. Yes, they'll yeah. use whatever they have yeah. to because you have to get well. And what if I came to you today and I gave you syringes and I even gave you the cocaine to use? Would you inject cocaine today? No. Why not, Randall? Because I don't want to. But I'm enabling yeah. you. I'm even giving you the dope and I'll make sure it's I, good that's dope. That's true. You don't want to yeah. do that? Yeah, yeah. That's because you don't use cocaine anymore, Randall. Right. You know, so right. like there's nothing I can do to make people use. And there's also nothing I can necessarily do to make them stop. I can give them a lot of resources and always remind them that they're loved, that they're valued and that there's another way for them. And that that other way will never come if they're dead. You know, so please, and, while and, you're and doing this, stay safe. And, and when you're ready, I'm here, dude. And there's so many other things we can do to help people in the meantime. Like it's not all or nothing. It's like. Do you want to get housing? Do you want to see your kids again? How about you try coming to a meeting of Rebel Recovery or something at you, Sarah, or, you know, anything? Yeah, and, and and that's the bottom line I always use when I'm arguing with people. I said, we're not, first of all, we're not encouraging increased use, but we are encouraging people to stay alive in yeah. case they would like to change their life. Yeah. Because you don't have an option once you're dead. Yeah, or even if they never change, even if somebody never changes their life, like we have to accept that human lives have inherent value, even if they're using drugs, they matter. Those people matter, you know. And I know that because my sister's dead, you know, and she mattered. She mattered when she was using drugs. If she had never gotten sober, I would have never changed my love for her, you know. She who she is and all the value she brought to the world never changed because of her drug addiction. Wow. And that's the thing that we really have to change is like, what do you really value? Some value and moral that you can achieve or do you value human life? And in social work, I think we need to value human life. Well said. We're out of time. Uh, if, if stuff Mindy told, said today uh, really pisses you off. Call your sponsor. Her phone number is... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm easy to find. I yeah. am Mindy Vincent yeah, yeah, and yeah. my number's everywhere and you can find us yeah, on yeah. Facebook and my organization. If you loved what I said, you can come volunteer with us. Yeah, the Utah Harm Reduction Coalition does an awful lot of good work and and you've done so much good work. Thank you. And you have helped almost single-handedly changing some societal thoughts here in Utah about addiction and recovery. So. Woo! Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I always tell social workers, if you're in it for anything less than to change the world, you might want to reconsider your path. But I'm grateful for the amazing community partners who like through this pathway, even if they didn't show up in the beginning, everybody's showing up now, you know, to yeah. fight for lives. And we're fighting together in the, the spectrum of services that all of us have put together. You know, it really encompasses everything people need and the way we all get to work together right. and that we're friends in real yeah. life is 
the best thing we could ever be for the people we're trying to serve. We do have a great recovery community here. We do. Thank you, Mindy. Thank you. It's good to see you it's again. It's good to see you, and I love being here, and I love your neon light. Oh, well, we do too. Thank the you. Greatest. Yes. Thank you for watching another edition of Odyssey House Journals. Mm -hmm.